Okay, we're good. Okay. Hey, my, we're live. This is 100% live, obviously. So uh, we got some production staff here. I'm going to be preaching to. I got you behind that screen right there on your TV or your computer, your phone, whatever I'm preaching to you this morning. I'm continuing a second part, the second half of our two-part series on dreams. Last week, I kind of opened up, shared that I had a weird dream once. It started out as a countdown from like 10, 9, 8, all the way down to zero. And right when it hit zero in the dream, in real life, my alarm clock went off, which was really weird. I woke up questioning everything at that point. Um, the other uh, dream that I had that's really weird, I don't remember it, but I, I often have this dream. It's a recurring dream. Don't know what the dream is. I don't even remember it. But it's a dream where I wake up cracking up. It's hysterically funny and terrifying to my wife who wakes up to her husband just laughing to himself in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know if you had a weird dream last night. If you want to go ahead and share that, I'm sure there's a ton of people right now that would love to just interpret that dream for you on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. The internet loves that stuff. But that's not the kind of dream that I've been talking about over the last two weeks. The kind of dream I'm talking about is kind of like a hope. It's a dream or a hope that you have for your future, for your family, for your marriage, maybe your career, something you're hoping God would do in your life spiritually. That's what I'm talking about this week. And I want you to, I want to do it looking over the shoulder of the guy we started talking about last week, Joseph. You see, when Joseph was 17 years old, he had a literal dream, a real dream while he was asleep, two of them that we know of that involved his siblings, his 11 brothers and his family, bowing down in honor and reverence for him. And we know this because he shared these dreams with them. And obviously they weren't like, oh, thank the Lord for your dream. Uh, it was very off-putting to them. In fact, it even says, it wasn't so much the content as much, it says the way he shared the dream. It was obvious in the, the, the writing that uh, Joseph was sharing this dream because it was about him. It was all about his honor. And he's sharing this dream with his siblings, even his father, who's his biggest fan because he's, his dad is this, uh, he's doting on his son, the youngest son, Joseph. Joseph, even his dad says, rebukes him and says, do you really think we're going to bow to you? Do you really think that's going to happen? Well, Joseph is um, a 17-year-old favorite son who obviously has a, has, he's kind of obsessing with that, sharing these dreams over and over again. And uh, he also is a tattletale. It's, it's documented that he was tattling on his brothers, constantly bringing his dad bad reports and widening the gap of his dad's love for his brothers and himself. He was stoking the fire of this whole animosity and drama and favoritism. Well, I just to review, I, we shared this last week. His brothers initially had enough of it, or eventually had enough of it. They conspire to kill him, but instead of killing him, they throw him into a pit, into a cistern, and they were going to leave him for dead. But then there were some Ishmaelite traders coming by, and they live in Canaan, and these traders were headed to Egypt, a faraway uh, land from Canaan. And they were headed to Egypt and the brothers were like, let's at least profit off of them. So they sell Joseph into slavery. And at, you know, a teenager from then on, the prime of his life is spent in brutal suffering. He goes from being a slave to being unjustly accused of a crime, sent to prison, to rot in prison for years. And then through a crazy turn of events, finds himself eyeball to eyeball with Pharaoh, 
the Pharaoh, the, the king Pharaoh of all of Egypt, probably the, the most powerful man in Joseph's known world at the time. And how he gets there is, is involves dreams. One of the officials that Pharaoh has in his, in his uh, official palace um, um, staff is a cup bearer, someone who just ensures that whatever's in that cup is not poisonous. So this is a person that probably takes a sip or at least makes sure that whatever Pharaoh's about to drink is safe to drink and eat. And this cup bearer, gets thrown into prison, meets Joseph. While he's in prison, he has a dream. Joseph's thing is dreams. Joseph loves to interpret dreams and he's good at it. And he interprets the cupbearer's dream properly. And then and that dream was actually a foreshadowing of the cupbearer getting out of prison. He gets out of prison. He's in front of Pharaoh. A couple years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer remembers Joe. Joe knows how to do this. Joe can interpret the dream. And so that's where we left off last week. Joe is brought before Pharaoh with a chance to help Pharaoh with his dream. Pharaoh is reeling. He has a dream. He is convinced is foreshadowing some kind of uh, turn of events in Egypt's history that he needs to know about. And Joe's there. He can fix this. Joe knows how to do this. This is a softball that Joe can knock out of the park. And instead of leveraging this opportunity for political gain, this is what Joe says to Pharaoh. And we read this last week. He looks at Pharaoh and he says, I can't do it. He says, it's beyond my power. And then if that wasn't political death enough, Joe follows it up with this. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. There's no separation of church and state in Egypt when church, the, the state is the, is the church. Pharaoh believes he is God. It, it's one of those divine monarchies. He's convinced he's God. He institutes that religion, the worship of him throughout all of Egypt. Everybody knows Pharaoh is God. And what Joseph just said is, you're not God. And if you are, you're pretty incompetent and you're dependent on a greater God to set you at ease. We talked about last week, that was not just political uh, death, that was physical death. Those are the kind of things that get people killed in the ancient world, looking right at a deity king and telling them he's not God, that sends you right to the guillotine. Well, what happened in that moment is Joseph exchanged the possibility of ever seeing this dream come true where not just his brothers or his siblings, but anybody honoring and bowing down to Joseph. I mean, Joseph knows he can interpret dreams, but rather than just leverage the situation, he actually exchanges it, not just for his glory, but he exchanges it for God's glory. Joseph takes his dream of having honor and people bowing down and exchanges it for the glory and honor of the one true God. And I asked you the question, are you willing to do that with your dreams? And this week I wanna ask the question, if we do that with our dreams, what becomes of our other dreams, right? How do we interpret all the other things we want to see in our life through the lens of ultimately wanting the ultimate dream, and that is the glory and honor of God? How do we interpret the rest of our dreams, the rest of the things that we hope for uh, in our life? Well, here's what happens next. Pharaoh doesn't kill Joseph. He actually is taken back and he asks Joseph to go ahead and go ahead. Let's see what God would say about this dream. Joseph interprets the dream and it's so compelling and it's so profound to Pharaoh that Pharaoh ends up 
appointing Joseph as essentially chief of staff. Here's the dream. The dream is a bunch of pictures and metaphors. Uh, There's involves animals and some things, but basically the dream is a foreshadowing. Egypt is about to go through a brutal, violent famine. Imminently, there's going to be a a famine that's going to decimate the entire region, not just Egypt, the whole region. But before that famine is going to be seven years of surplus. And the way you're going to survive the famine is if you take the surplus from those seven years and you store it up, you save it for that coming famine. This is the dream. This is Joseph's interpretation, obviously empowered by God. And Pharaoh hears about it and he says, this this is it. He's inspired by it. He appoints Joseph as chief of staff. This is actually the words of Pharaoh. Here's what it says. Um, Pharaoh said to Joseph in chapter 41, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. And it goes on actually uh, to say that... um, Pharaoh ended up, it says here, uh, he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down, bow down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or a foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. It goes on just to basically say, Joseph's dream is coming true, right? This would be a dream for anybody to have all these people bowing down to you and honoring you. But that wasn't Joseph's dream, was it? Joseph's dream is very specific. Joseph's dream is his siblings and his family bowing down to him. Well, lo and behold, the dream that Pharaoh had comes true. There's seven years of surplus. Joseph leads it. And eventually on the back end of that is a brutal, violent famine in the land. And wouldn't you know, that land includes Canaan, where Joseph is from, where his siblings are from, where his family is from. And here they are showing up, looking for Joseph's help. So Jacob's sons, this is chapter 42. Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine was in Canaan as well. And since Joseph was governor over all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all people, it was to him, his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed. They bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognizes his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? He demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We've come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him and he remembered the dreams. Here's the thing about dreams. They look different from a distance, right? You ever had a dream about something and you thought it was going to be great and then you get it and it's good, but it's just different. You know, like if if you've had a dream, like married people out there, if you're like, I had a dream about what marriage was going to be like and it's good, but it's different, right? You have this dream, but then you had happens and it's just different. You ever have a dream of being a CEO or a leader of a company and you're like, I have this dream of leading and being in charge of stuff. And then you get it and it's different. It's good, but it's different. Having a dream, having kids, right? I want to have kids. It'd be this great dream come true. And the dream comes true, but it's different, right? It's good, but it's different. You see, for Joe, 
his dream when he was 17 years old was his siblings bowing down and honoring him. And then in person, in reality, when he got up close to it, it's Joseph sacrificing the prime years of his life in slavery, in prison, and then having the chance in that moment to actually serve and to save his siblings' lives. See, that, that's what's happening there. They're coming to Joseph for hope, for salvation, for help, really, food-wise. They, they are starving, and they're bowing down. You see, the dream is different. Here, here's what we learn. God-glorifying dreams are more about service than they are status. They're more about service. Here's my question to you this morning. Some of you need to listen up right now. What if the most powerful thing God wants to do in your life, what if the biggest thing God wants to do with your dreams is actually not about you? What if the biggest thing God wants to do in you is actually gonna be through you for someone else? Yeah, God's dreams, God glorifying dreams are less about status and more about service. Well, you're probably thinking, Joseph, don't you, don't you remember what happened? I mean, here's, here's what ends up happening. Joseph actually, over time, over a couple of other events that I'm not, I'm not gonna summarize right now, Joseph ends up saving his family's life. He brings them to Egypt. He not only feeds them and provides food, but he actually extends the honor of now his honor is going to go to them and they will be revered and honored as a, as a significant family in Egypt. They get a whole bunch of land, the prime real estate in Egypt, at the time where all the cool people lived. They get that land. Joseph invites them into Egypt. They're honored before Pharaoh. And this family is a noble, royal family in Egypt. Joseph forgives them. And then he doesn't just forgive them. He has a relationship with them. He restores that relationship. And then he extends his backstage past, all of his influence to them as a family now living and being cared for in the sanctuary of Egypt's protection and fertile land and surplus of food. And this is where you ask, don't, Joseph, don't you remember though? I mean, you remember the dreams, but don't you remember what they did to you? Don't you remember the smell of of the dirt that you laid in at the bottom of that pit that they threw you in? Don't you remember the, the, the grip of their hands as they gripped your, your arms and your legs and threw you in there? Don't you remember them fading off into the distance as you were drug away in chains in slavery to Egypt? Don't you, don't you remember that? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. And it's one chapter earlier and it's found in the place and the moment where Joseph names his two children. Here it is. Chapter 41, verse 50. During this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife. Verse 51. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. 
hang on a second. How did God make you forget everyone in your family if you instantly recognized them the moment they showed up one chapter later? Did you, does that mean, did Joseph intellectually forget? Like he just spaced, God just kind of wiped it from his cognitive memory. Is that what that means? Well, we know the answer is no, because he remembered him. He remembered his brothers instantly by name, who they were. And did he, did he truly forget all of his troubles? Like, did he actually go, I don't even remember what, what I went through when I was in my teenage. I totally forgot my troubles. Is that what it meant? No, we know that's not true because in chapter 50, he actually remarks. He tells his brothers, you meant something for harm. He remembers the harm. Listen, this is so important. Lean in right now. Listen to me. Listen, listen. Biblical forgetfulness is choosing to remember something differently. Listen, listen to me. Biblical forgetfulness doesn't mean you erase from your memory. It means you choose to remember something differently. Something happened in Joseph's life. And we know the answer is God happened in Joseph's life. And because God happened, God made him remember something different about his past. He doesn't remember the past the same way. Another word or another way to think about it is Joseph interprets. He sees his past differently. This is what God does in your life. He helps you look back and he helps you see things because God intervenes in your history, in your life, in your present. And now when you look back, you don't remember those people the same way. You don't remember what they did to you the same way. You don't remember the pain the same way. You don't remember your sin and your past the same way. It's not like you forget it, but you don't remember it the same And here's how Joseph remembers it. In fact, he gives it to us in the second child's name. These work together. It goes like this. It says, Joseph uh, named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of grief. One of the things you do when you read the Bible is you ask sometimes, what does the Bible not say? helps you understand a little better. Here's what the Bible doesn't say right there. Joseph does, doesn't name his son Ephraim because God made him fruitful in his land of happiness. It's, it's grief. Don't, don't make any mistake about it. It's grief for sure. It's not happiness. It's not joy. It's grief. But God can do fruitful things in a land of grief. It doesn't say God made me happy in my grief. It doesn't say God made me happy in my land of grief. No, no, no. It says God made me fruitful. We serve a God who can make you fruitful in the land of grief. Some of you are in that land right now. And here's what I want you to hear. You can't harvest anything in a land where someone didn't put seeds in it. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. Some of you don't see the fruit in your land of grief, but let me tell you something. You can't have fruit in a land that there's no seeds in. And if God brought the fruit in the land, he put the seeds in there too. Some of you right now are in grief and I want you to know something. God is busy planting some seeds in that land right now. You don't see it. It's under the dirt. 
Listen, it doesn't matter if it's a land of grief or if it's a land of joy. What matters is, do you have dirt? And let me tell you something, as humans, we got a lot of dirt. We got so much dirt in our life and it doesn't matter what kind of dirt it is. Do you let God plant his seeds, his truth, his word in your time of joy, in your land of joy and in your land of grief? God is busy. God made it happen. God intervened. It's not Joe anymore. It's not about Joe. It's God made, God made. What does this have to do with dreams? Everything. Because let me tell you something. If God can make you fruitful in your dreams, he is busy even in your nightmares. Because this is what Joseph says in verse 50. He says this, you intended to harm me talking to his brothers, but God, COVID-19 intended to harm us, pandemics intended to harm us, elections maybe, uh, politics uh, intended, but God, but God's intentions are always gonna win out, but God intended it all, not some of it, not a little bit of it, not most of it, not 50%, not 51% of it. God intended all of it for good. And he brought me, not the pandemic, nothing else, not my boss, not my ex-wife, not my ex-husband, none of those things. God brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. Listen to me, listen to me. It's all about God. Every one of those sentences, every one of those sentences is God made, God initiated, God produced, God ordained, and God gets all the glory. So that's why Paul says it like this. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter three. Paul says, now all glory, all of it go to God. Not some of it, all glory go to God who is able because he's the only one who's able through his mighty power, not my mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Here it is, God glorifying dreams will always be across the border from anything you ask for and anything you can think of. You need to exchange your dream because listen to me, God has a bigger one. Some of you this morning need to let a dream die because it's too small. It's too small. God's got a bigger dream for you. You got to let it die. That's what God says. God says he will do, he will do for his glory immeasurably more than you can ask or think of. So how, how do we do this? How do we do this? Um, well, Joseph is a good example, but we don't, we're not saved by examples. I mean, there's lots of examples, you know, in the Bible we can follow, but <laughs> if, our, if our hope is that we can try to follow this example of Joseph, it takes God out of the equation. Man, God has to intervene. 
What did Joseph say? What did he say? God made it happen. God made me. God made me. God initiated. God produced. God, God, God. God has to do something in you this morning, today, right now. God's got to do something. And the good news is he did. And all you have to do is receive it. He did the work. You don't do any work in receiving something. You just do, you just, you just receive it. You don't do any work for it. So here's what it is. Um, just like Joseph, there's another person in the Bible named Jesus who left his homeland of heaven because he's God. And he came to a foreign land called earth here. And he lived among us and he served all of us. In fact, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve as a slave to all. He served all. So he was enslaved. And then he was unjustly accused of a crime called sin because he was sinless. He's perfect. And then he goes to a cross and he does die, but then he raises from death and he comes to life. And then he extends to anyone who's willing to believe the ability to come into the palace, to talk to God, the father, the king of all, to have a relationship with him, to be welcomed as family into the palace of heaven when we die, if we simply believe and receive his work. And then what you do is you take God's past and you make it true of your past. This is so important. Let me tell you something. You can't interpret your dreams for your future. You can't interpret what, you can't know how to take your hopes and put them underneath the glory of God unless you first take the glory of God and what he did for your past. Let me tell you something. Your present right now is quickly becoming your past, but it shows up in your future. It does. Your past shows up in your future all the time. And unless you recognize that because of Christ's past and his sacrifice on the cross, my past is covered and redeemed and restored. I can't have any hope for the future. Some of you right now, your dreams, all the things you want to see God do in your life are just stuck because you haven't received the free gift of God's forgiveness and his grace for your past. And you can't think about your future, interpret or understand God's plan for your future unless you make God and his love enough to heal and forgive your sin, past, present, and future. Until you make God's past, real past defined, until, let me put it, until you let your real past be defined by God's real past and the cross, you can't dream big enough for your future. You just can't do it. So here's God glorifying dreams can only be interpreted through the lens of the gospel. That is Christ's finished work in his life. His perfect life is credited to your account. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your mess. He sees Jesus' perfection for your past, for your present, and for your future. That's what we have to do. We have to recognize, first of all, that our highest dream in life, our biggest Hope and dream should be the glory of God. It's worth it. And we need to let other dreams die because they're always going to be smaller, too small for what God made you for if you allow his glory to be number one. And you got to recognize that God glorifying dreams are not about status. They are about service. And then you have to remember 
that uh, God and his dreams, his glory, he puts seeds in all kinds of soil. You got to bring your soil to him. You got to trust him with it, including your past. You got to let the mess of your life be his, all of it, everything, trust him with it. Let him use it for his glory. And look, I don't know what your dreams are going to be. I don't know what your life's going to be when you do this. I don't know what your life's going to be when you surrender for all God's glory to his leadership in your life. I don't know what it's going to be, but I promise you this, and scripture tells it to me, that it will be more than you can ask for. It'll be more than you can even think of, and I promise you, it will be more than you could ever dream of. Let's pray. Jesus, your word in James says that when we draw near to you, you draw near. Lord, in this time, we need a lot of you nearby. <laughs> There's a lot of people I'm probably talking to that have felt you're very far and you're not, you don't feel close. Uh, so Lord, it's not like we need you to draw near spatially. We know you're the closest thing to us at any given point, but we need to feel your nearness. We need your spiritual um, sense. We need a spiritual sense that you're very present and near. And so God, I pray that right now, everybody watching this would begin to draw near toward you. That means less of us, less of me, more of you. Not my priorities, not my values, but yours, your leadership, your commands, not my will, all of those things, Lord, as we draw near to you quickly, please draw near to everybody that's watching this so that, Lord, they know that you are the God that is worth living for, dying for, and glorifying in every way. Thank you for your son. Thank you for intervening. Thank you that you make these things happen. You get the credit even for today. Not me, not this production, nothing, Lord. This is you. You're showing up right now in homes, in hearts right now. And so you get the credit, you get the glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, amen. Well, thank you for joining us this week. We will be back next week. Until then, we love you. We'll see you soon. Be blessed. Thank you.